This comes from Paul's book to the Romans. This is chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. All right. Oh, I'm in the way. And I'll read this for us and then I'll pray. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Okay, that was Romans 8, 18 to 25. Let me pray for us uh, before we go into today's message. Dear God, we just thank you so much for giving us this time together. And as our brother uh, Peter alluded to um, as he prayed for our worship, Um, goodness and mercy have followed us all the days of our lives. You have been good to us and your goodness is better than anything else that we could have tasted in this world. But I pray that you'd help us to use all of the blessings that you poured out for us, not just for our personal fulfillment. Help us understand the calling that you've placed on our lives and on this church. God, I pray that during this time you would send your spirit and you reveal the glory that you put into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So throughout my life, there have been times where I wish someone from the future could come back and give me a warning. So for example, in high school, I used to have longish hair that I would part down the middle, and if you're having trouble picturing it in your mind, maybe the nickname will give you some help. It's called the butt cut. So it looked like a butt on my head. And when I was rocking this hairdo, I wish someone from the future could have come and said, hey, move that part over just an inch or two. It will help you out tremendously. Trust me, now that hairstyle is memorialized in my high school yearbook forever. Um, More recently, Jen and I bought our first apartment in New York, and there was a lot to learn, and a lot of the people in the congregation helped us out. But during that process, there is one thing that I kept fixating on, and that was interest rates. Every morning, I would wake up and check the interest rates, and then I'd call my lender and harass them and go, hey, is this the best interest rate? Should we lock it in? And I wish that this obsession of mine could have been quelled by someone coming from the future and saying, hey, Fred, for your timeline, the day is May 13th. May 13th is the day. Just relax until then, and then lock it in. Now, I'm sure all of us have got like similar moments where if you think back on your life, You wish you would have turned left, but instead you had turned right. And when you get past like this superficial Marty McFly trying to give himself sports scores so that he could bet on games and make a lot of money type of scenarios, I think we'll realize that there's a common thread to these types of situations. 
Most of them occur right before we're about to get stuck with something that we cannot change, like a wine stain on a white couch, or a scratch on your favorite watch, or a scuff on your favorite purse, or like a butt cut or a bad mortgage rate. Now in Romans 8, Paul tells us that something is stuck, something cannot change. In verses 20 to 21, it says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation, that is everything that has been made, is now stuck. And Paul uses different words to describe this reality. He uses words like futility. He uses words like bondage. He uses words like corruption. So how is creation stuck? What does it mean that it's subjected to futility? What does it mean that it's in bondage to corruption? This past week, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a clear and stark picture of the Earth's present situation. This panel, comprising 234 scientists, reviewed over 14,000 scientific studies, and cleared its reports past 195 different governments. And the main takeaways are the following. First, since 1850, the Earth has heated up significantly and will reach an important threshold, 1.5 degrees Celsius increase, within the next 20 years. Second, it's projected that because of the momentum of the changes that are going on, the earth will continue to heat up for the next 30 years, no matter what we do. Even if we stopped all carbon emissions today, it would still not stop what's going to happen for the next 30 years. And lastly, it unequivocally stated without any hemming or hawing for the first time that human behavior, specifically the burning of fossil fuels, has contributed significantly to global warming. Now, the implications of these findings, the real field consequences of them are quite terrifying. What they're basically saying is over the next 30 years, we should expect at the very least more heat waves, more floodings, more droughts, and more compound events, such as the simultaneous occurrence of drought and heat waves leading to wildfires and other devastating outcomes. Over the last generation, it's become clear that creation is groaning and stuck in this pattern of increasing pain, increasing suffering. Now, Paul did not have this report in his hands when he's writing Romans 8. But from his travels throughout the Roman Empire, he probably would have noticed a few things. He would have witnessed the effects of warfare on the land and depopulation of cities from animals and human beings after they had been conquered by an army. He probably would have come across mining areas where iron and precious metals are being extracted from the ground and purified with fire, fueled by charcoal for weaponry or imperial coinage, respectively. And would have, he would have experienced definitely the effects of drought and famine. In Acts 11, we're told that a prophet named Agabus came from Jerusalem to Antioch to warn the people of an upcoming worldwide famine which struck during the reign of Emperor Claudius. Now, these personal experiences must have resonated with Paul as he thought about the consequences of human sin on creation. But Paul's view of creation would also have been shaped by his reading of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve had just fallen into sin. And if you think back, God pronounced a series of curses in order to punish humanity and creation for what happened. And in verse 17, this is the punishment that he gave to creation. It said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. 
On a quick reading, you might assume that this is a very general curse, and it refers to any natural thing that is harmful to human beings, things like hurricanes, earthquakes, poisonous animals, or diseases. But if you meditate on what these verses are saying, you can see that the curse is much more specific than that. It has to do with humanity's inefficient relationship to nature. We work the ground to produce food, but instead we get thorns and thistles. The curse on creation is that its relationship with us has turned sour. Where there once was harmony, where there once was symbiosis, there is now inefficiency, there's now discard, there's now waste, and there's now pain. And going back to Romans, we grasp the significance of Paul's word futility to describe creation. There is futility built into our relationship with nature, and we see this all over the place today. Consider scientific research. In the 16th century, natural philosophers argued that making empirical observations, things that you can observe with your senses, and experimentation should be the foundation of what we know about nature. Put simplistically, they did not want their approach and views of nature to be soured by superstition or by philosophical or theological agendas. They wanted their understanding of nature to arise from nature itself. And this led to the rise of the scientific method, which in order to arrive at groundbreaking or additive knowledge needs to go through a lengthy process of trial and error. So for example, there's a town in New Jersey called Edison. Now, I had never thought about it, but I knew it as the place of good jajangmyeon and good, like, Korean food. But then it dawned on me, oh, yeah, it's named Edison after Thomas Alva Edison, the inventor of the light bulb. And this guy set up a laboratory in Menlo Park, and he created the first electric light bulb. And the way it works is you pass a current through a filament in a glass vacuumed container. Now, the hardest part of the research for him was finding the right filament. It had to burn bright, but not too bright, and it had to burn for a long period of time. Now, according to him, he tested over 6,000 different little filaments to see how the electrical current would pass through it before he finally stumbled upon the right one, carbonized bamboo filament. 5,999 wrong tries before he found the right one. Trial and error, inefficiency and waste. But Edison is actually a success story because he actually found something that was useful for humankind. But because of this trial and error nature of scientific research, there's so many instances of people doing things that ultimately lead to dead ends, what are technically called null results. And beyond science, the world is full of null results. Think about your own jobs and the things that frustrate you the most about the work. So I'm a teacher, so I teach Latin which nobody likes. <laughs> so I have to pull the, these kids' teeth to get them to study their, you know, first sequential endings. And sometimes you'll get a kid who's really, really struggling, really, really far behind. So I start meeting with them after class. I start creating specialized assignments for them. I say, hey, do you understand what we're doing? Yes, I understand it. Okay, spend the next week, look over these things that I carefully prepared for you, and then we'll meet and see how it goes. We meet next week. They haven't opened their book. They haven't looked at their assignment. They haven't even studied anything. And they're like, oh, I just thought meeting you with you was enough. I said, no, I made this specially made. There's efficiency. There's inefficiency. There's waste. Maybe you spend thousands of dollars and many hours flying back and forth to a client, trying to get them to be a part of your company. And then later on, you realize that they were never interested in you in the first place. They're just using you as a bargaining chip for the person that they're actually interested in. Think of all the wasted man hours. For those that are in the healthcare profession, 
Think about this. You use every available technique, every intervention that's available to you to save a patient's life, but ultimately they succumb to their illness and it makes you feel like all of your efforts are for nothing. You use all of this energy and there is no result. And as this last scenario hints at, this futility is not just like frustration. There's pain that's involved. There is corruption that's involved. Genesis uses that word pain, whereas Paul uses the word corruption. And when you start calculating the real costs of the wasted man hours that go into these things that frustrate us about our jobs, you start realizing how many lost opportunities there were for you to do something else or for this money to go for some other purpose that would have benefited somebody more. On a global scale, the inefficiencies and waste that come from selfish people trying to extract as much as they can from the ground produces real pain, real harm in the form of hunger, displacement, and other things. Now, to cope with this futility, which exists everywhere, I think some of us are used to kind of this self-talk saying, well, I know this didn't lead to what I thought it would lead, but it was good for my character. Or it put me on the path that I'm on today. But even as you say that to yourself, I think there's still some of us that can't shake that frustrated feeling of, God, I put so much of my life into this thing and it got me nowhere. What a waste. Now, Paul paints his very bleak picture as to why this frustration exists. Creation is groaning. It has been cursed because of Adam and Eve. And people demand that it produce. But because of this curse, there's this inefficient futility that seems inescapable and results in pain and corruption. We demand that our work produces something. We demand that the ground yields fruit, but instead we get thorns and we get thistles. Creation is stuck. So where does that leave it? Where can it turn in this hopeless situation? Paul tells us that creation, that its relief is in this future power. Notice every time Paul describes creation's dire situation, he immediately follows it up with the word hope. And this begs the question, what is this hope? In verse 19, it tells us that creation is waiting for the revealing of God's children. Verse 21 goes on to tell us that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Surprisingly, creation's hope is the church. It is you. It is me. We have future power in us. And this future power is the thing that will set creation free. Now, this is surprising for a couple of reasons. The first reason, the scale. We're so small compared to the universe. And when you hear Paul telling us that the church is the thing that's going to set creation free, it's akin to him saying a colony of ants is going to stop a moving Mack truck. Just the scale of it doesn't seem to make sense. Second, there's an irony. Adam and Eve were the reason that creation was cursed in the first place. And now God is going to use their descendants to bring it freedom. Something sounds a little strange there. And lastly, there's hypocrisy. Historians of science have noted that for a long time, Christians, especially Christians of a Protestant or Puritanical bent, have centered salvation history on human beings for so long, even narrowly fixating on individual, personal, human destiny. And I think many of us were raised on a strand of Christianity that was obsessed with your personal spiritual destiny. Are you going to heaven or hell and never thought about or considered the cosmic consequences of what we believe and what God is doing in our souls? 
But despite all of these surprising things, Paul insists that the church has the future power that will set creation free. How can this be? I think the first thing that we have to notice is the church functions on a different rationale than the rest of the world. It is able to bypass the cycle of futility because of Christ. Now, without the gospel, people seek to get right with God through the law and through obedience. But throughout the book of Romans, Paul insists that no one is able to do this. People work and work and work in the spiritual realm, but are never able to achieve their intended results. There's a futility there. But by way of contrast, the church has been given a way out of this cycle because of Christ. When we were unable to work our way up to God, God gave us a way through his son. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church can set creation free because it no longer operates on the model of fruitless and inefficient and exploitative work. Instead, it's fueled by faith where the results don't originate from what we do, but they originate with God's grace. We have a different way of operating than the world has. The second thing that the church has is it has future glory. It knows one day there's going to be a grand resurrection where our bodies and all of creation along with it will be restored and lifted beyond the curse. In verse 23, it says, Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, when you look at the church with human eyes, I think this is still a shock. There's not that much to see. At our worst and at our most insignificant, we can be a very hypocritical, powerless, judgmental, divisive group. But Paul in the book of Romans is not looking with human eyes. He's looking at us from God's perspective. And when he sees that, he knows that this is not all that we're going to be. He says that we are the first fruits of the resurrection. Within our hearts, we have these seeds of glory. One day, the church will be freed from its sinful and corrupt way of life. One day, we'll be resurrected to a permanent state of glory. We have, in this present moment, future power. And when that happens, creation will no longer be subjected to futility and corruption. Instead, it will thrive and be encased in glory. Before Pastor Sam left, he spent quite a lot of time walking our church through the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation paints a picture of what this future glory will be like. This comes from Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. When the church gets to experience the full power of its future glory, God will re renew the universe along with it. But there's one quick point to make about future glory. It's not merely future. In verse 18, Paul says that this glory is going to be revealed. 
And the word revealed doesn't mean that a new reality is going to be created at some point in the distant future. It means that a present reality is going to be uncovered, like when a magician reveals a trick or a hidden identity is exposed. It exists right now. And even if it will only be fully realized sometime in the future, that future power is available to us in the present moment. And the same is true for the church's resurrection. The power exists now. And if the church can harness it and live in the reality of that, then creation can experience some of that future glory today. 1969, Maya Angelou, a black poet and writer, published her autobiography entitled, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Now, I read this first uh, in middle school, and I started thinking a lot about this as I meditated on the themes from this message. In it, she talks about her life from the ages of 3 to 17, and it chronicles the racism and sexual abuse that she experienced in Arkansas and California and St. Louis. Now, for a time, these experiences were so traumatic for her that she refused to talk for a number of years. And throughout the book, she uses the metaphor in the title of a cage bird to describe that stuck feeling, that feeling like she had been oppressed to the point where she didn't know how to escape. One day, she found freedom through a teacher in her town named Mrs. Bertha Flowers. Myra described her as a black aristocrat, someone who, through the way that she carried herself, seemed to rise above the racism and even resist the oppression that existed in the South, and Maya esteemed her as the measure of what a human being could be. Now, she helped Maya break free from her self-imposed silence in the following way. She said, I want you to read poetry, but not just read it, but read it aloud. And she recounts that when she first heard Mrs. Flowers read the opening of Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities, it was like hearing poetry for the first time. And she also mentions that when she first read aloud from the same book, tears of joy filled her eyes as she read the line, it's a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. Maya Angelou overcame her seemingly hopeless and oppressive situation through these seemingly small and insignificant things. A teacher in her small town in Arkansas, a book by Charles Dickens. But these things showed her that the world as presently constituted is not all that there is, that there's something beyond it, that there's glory beyond it. And the church is called to do that on creation's behalf. Now in closing, Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit and he was very, very smart. Much smarter than me, much smarter than us, but he could not see exactly how sin, creation, the church and glory all connected together. In verses 24 and 25, he wrote, In this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul knew that the church's salvation had cosmic significance, but he did not know how it all tied together. And that's why he leaned on hope. Absolute certainty that a reality that he could not yet see or fully grasp or understand was going to come into being. Now in the same way, I, the elders, the leadership here at Good News, all of us here are probably not smart, wise, or moral enough to grasp how all of this connects together. But we have this key. The church's future glory is creation's hope. Today, God is calling us to pull that future glory into the present moment. Because of God's grace in Christ, we've been set free from this cycle of futility. Because of this grand resurrection, we can strive to apply resurrection power 
the idea that the world is not the way that it should be, that there is a goal that we're headed towards that Christ has secured for us by his death, we can apply that power to today's corrupt world. And for the church to be all that God is calling us to be, we need to pull future glory into this present moment. Let's pray. This is a pretty, um, like, cosmic message, pretty, like, out there message. But I think there are certain parts of it that are easy to cling on to. I think all of us have experienced this frustration um, with creation some points in our life where we're working for something or where we're praying for something or we're asking for something or longing for something and we are not able to see those results. Paul's encouragement for that situation is we have within us the future power we need to bring about glory, to bring about peace, to bring about the type of change that Christ ultimately is going to bring for not just the church, but for all of creation. Maybe one of the things we can do is kind of start where our brother Peter left us off at the last worship. God has been good to us. He has filled our cups. He has poured out his spiritual blessings upon us. That is the power source that we need in order to be all that God is calling us to be in the present. So why don't we meditate on that for a little bit before our brother Peter and Sister Eunice and Brother Dave lead us into a time of worship.